Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hi, everyone. Michelle Dunbar here, and today I'm with Mark and Stephen, and we're going to review the movie Beautiful Boy. Um, and we're, we're going to take on the addiction myths that are exist throughout the movie. Um, we each, Mark and I watched the movie together, um, and Steve watched it in his own time. And let me first say that I wasn't looking forward to watching this movie because Hollywood's depiction of addiction is always filled with myths and lies, and it continuously promotes the powerlessness and disease mantra, which is a serious problem. Watching it was pretty difficult, I think, for all three of us. Um, But what made it much more palatable was the great acting. The truth is, Steve Carell was amazing. I thought he depicted what a father goes through perfectly. Um, I thought the young man who played Nick, I think his name is Timothy Chalamet, um, I thought he was tremendous and really did portray what that is like which is probably why it made it a little bit more difficult to watch because of you know it's like reliving parts of my own life um you know but what we're going to do now is we're going to break down what we saw in the movie in each myth that was portrayed and discuss um how the path the father went down um was based on his own intense fears that were driven by the misinformation that he was getting from the internet from treatment professionals from everywhere um so, all right, let me, let me ask you, Mark, what were your thoughts? Well, I think uh, it, was, it was difficult for me to watch, actually. Um, it, it disturbed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll tell you, it didn't, the, the, the scenes romanticizing putting a needle in your arm and, and that whole Hollywood thing is fairly played out to me. It, it's unnecessary. Oh, yeah, with, all, with, the, with the intense music yeah, and... and yeah, you know, but then the more I watched, um, the more it made me sad because I realized that first of all, I, I lived through some of that myself when I was young, um, and but but mostly because it was it was exactly the opposite of what was what could have been productive for that kid. It the the entire process that the movie depicted was shockingly what you should not do to help somebody. Now, I say that, but it's important because it was a true story to understand that the father was doing everything he could do to fix his kid. And I think that's what parents do. Yes. Um, But it was hard for me to watch because I was watching the treatment industry and our cultural paradigm of drug addiction and all the myths surrounding it creating the problem in this kid you know um what could have been you know months or a year or two of of experimenting and and going down a bad path uh 
is probably was prolonged and became incredibly painful for this young man because uh, he was being taught that fundamentally that that drugs are the only way to his happiness and that was hard for me to watch because when you're young and that is instilled in you as it was in me and since all of us yeah, yeah. every one of us yeah uh, I, I watched I remember thinking just like that kid did oh my god if if drugs and alcohol are the only thing that can make me happy and my brain chemistry is hijacked by this, why bother with recovery? Yeah, how can I ever be that happy again? How can I ever feel that good again? And that the myth of, you know, meth that they specifically portray is there's nothing better than meth. I mean, and then you hear a, a, an explanation from that, that expert on meth uh, you know, that, you know, talks with, about dopamine and the brain receptors and all, which sounds great. Yeah. Um, but there is a whole lot of research out there that, that says it's not true. And, um, and if it was true, then why doesn't everybody that tries meth, uh, you know, do it uncontrollably until they're dead? Well, the, the irony was the father went out and did it. <laughs> right. He did it once. <laughs> he did it once. <laughs> I, yeah. I, yeah. He did. He wasn't hooked. Uh, he did it once and, and moved on with his life. Um, so I, I, for me, it was, it was difficult to watch because of the, here's the deal. People are going to watch this, and, and it's going to further the cultural paradigm that drugs have power, and they don't. And we go over that in the freedom model, and, and that's beyond the scope of this particular podcast because it's a complex um, uh you know, something that we have to cover in more depth somewhere else. But, but boy, I tell you, the whole movie was just perpetuating myths. And uh, I just, that's why it was hard for me. Steve? Yeah, <clears throat> it was tough for me because, like you said, I, I went through some of what was in that movie. Yes. And it's important, you know, the distinction I want to make is it's not the addiction you know, it's 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 not this idea of being hijacked by drugs that that I went through. It I went through this sort of uh, what what I'm calling the recovery charade lately. You know, where uh, the, a parent has a particular role of how they're in, you know suppo supposed to treat you as an addict. You have a particular role you're supposed to play as an addict, things you're supposed to believe. The people who are helping you are in a particular role, and it sets up this whole social situation that drives everybody nuts, you know? And, and you know, that's, that's the part that's tough. Like, one of the parts that was tough for me to watch was when he did um, sober up for quite a while, and he went home, and uh, nobody trusted him because they're not supposed to, you know. Right. Um, <clears throat> nobody, um, you know, they wanted to give him these drug tests and things. And, uh, and you know, and I remember being in that sort of situation um, where you, you begin to think to yourself, well, you know, because of, because of course uh, you went to rehab and you were taught that, you know, Basically, you just have to quit and suck it up and do it. And so you're miserable and you're quit, but you are quit 
and then it gets you nowhere. And you say, well, why am I even bothering? And and that is clearly what was going through his mind in that situation when he left the house and started, you know, finding drugs on his way out after, I guess it was like a year and a half sober or something. And so that part was really painful for me to watch because I remember being there. And um, it's this whole circle of control that you're in, and you're not really quitting because you want to, you're quitting because you have to. And, and, and can I, can, can yeah. I jump in there? I, yeah, go ahead. I, that part bothered me. That was probably the part that bothered me the most in the movie was uh, he's sober all this time, right? And there's the scene where he's driving in the car and it depicts he's free, right? That's that's what that whole scene was about. He's got the, his he's full yeah. in the air. He's in the sunshine. Everything is wonderful, and then he starts to slowly slip back, right? As if the drugs are creeping. You can see it. The dramatization of the drugs are creeping back into his mind, and they preface it by talking about um, his brain being altered for up to two years, which is bunk. Okay, it's yeah, not true. But they preface it by that, so. It looks like the drugs are the drugs aren't even in the scene. I mean, it's literally he's just backsliding into a relapse, and then finally he goes back, and then they romanticize, you know, with the needle in his arm and how he feels, and he meets the girl, and you know, and then it just goes bad from there. But but what bothered me about that was nobody in that entire series of scenes was addressing the problem, which was. Why don't we ask Nick why he likes it? That never happens. I mean, his father asks a couple times, but in hysteria, as parents do, right? Because they're frightened beyond belief. But yeah. nobody, no professional, they're all giving excuses as to why the drug is going to take him over. So here's this kid who's making a start, and in the back of his head the whole time he's wanting to get high, and that never gets addressed by anybody supposedly helping him. And that's what bothered me was he was destined to get high again, right? Because he still wants to get high because that hasn't been addressed. Nobody's asking that question. And so throughout the movie, he almost dies because nobody has the courage to say, hey, you like this. How come? Maybe there's a way to like other options better and be happier making a change. Nobody says that. And that's, I think, what bothered me the most. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, the scene that you talk about too, Steve, uh, bothered me too because I, 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 I was years sober. I want to say at one point, and and I would get stuff that I'd done, at, you know, prior to getting sober thrown in my face. But you did this, and you did this, and you know, and it was just no matter what I did, it never seemed to be good enough, and it certainly does make going back to substances a bit more attractive um, when no matter what you do, people aren't going to trust you anymore. Uh, my mother didn't take a single phone call from me for five years into sobriety. Yeah. Wow. It took, it took her five years. She would not let me in her house. She would not take a call. She would not, I had to write her letters. and Everyone, you have to know, Mark's mother was a counselor. Yeah, she was. So, she was an alcoholism counselor. She was an alcoholism was, counselor. Was a, a she night. was implementing tough love because that's so effective. Yeah, because I needed that after five years of proving myself. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it was unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, I want to talk about a, a scene um, 
you know, we we talked about this a little bit, um, where towards the beginning of the movie, where the where Nick is puking and he finally agrees to get an evaluation, and in you know, I mean, this is what you know we see. He's got one binge weekend at the beginning of the movie. Now maybe there were more. I don't know. He obviously was having some fun in high school, like many of us did, and and the immediate answer is you know you have to go to treatment you have to be evaluated um after one binge weekend where he's 18 years old and he's just trying to you know start his life and become independent and um so he goes for this evaluation and had a treatment program where you know where the evaluator is really a salesperson right and you know, and, and you, you, she diagnoses him conveniently with being in denial, which that diagnosis literally boils my blood. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's just a, 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 it's a sales tactic yeah, more than anything else. Yeah, it's a catch-22. All roads lead to treatment. Yeah. He, he, you know, he probably said to where he can take it or leave it. And you know what? He probably, that was the truth for him right. at that point Anybody in time. Anybody can take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, he's... <laughs> You know, yeah. he's like, I had a lot of fun. I liked it. It was good. And he does say that at different points in the movie. Um, but then, he, I don't know if you remember this, Steve. The, the, what is the, he asks, the father asks this woman, what is your success rate? And I was like, wow, he asked that. That's a good question. Do you remember what she says, Steve? It was, was it like between 20 and 80% or yes. something like that? Yes. Yeah. She goes, high end 80%. And I was like, holy crap. I mean, that is outrageous. And then low end 25%. I don't even know <laughs> that, that answer just boggles the mind. What do you mean? <laughs> There's got to be some average between those two, right? Right, right, right. Steve, is it I 60? Said, is, it, is it 55? What, what would it be? I well, well, I was thinking, is it on a bad day, it's 25 for the treatment center, and what then on a good day for the treatment mean? center, it's 80%? What does that even mean? No. I couldn't so, believe it. And then the next thing you see, he's getting out his checkbook and insurance card, and I'm like, you you accepted that? <laughs> so well, you're you know obviously what? not a mathematician. <laughs> I, I want to jump in there because... He accepts it like millions of parents do I know, every year I know. because he doesn't know what to do. And he's been reading all this mythology about what meth does to the brain. Ironically, we give kids Adderall, which is crystal meth. At, yeah. at three years old. I yeah. mean, kids are getting at three years old. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And, and you know, Michelle had Carl Hart on her other podcast a few yes. years ago, and he specifically said, I have looked at all of this stuff about meth permanently changing the brain, all of these cognitive changes and deficits that happen, and you can't verify it in the data. You know, he went directly against Nora Volkoff and all of that data about meth. Yeah, he and did. he said, and he's a neuroscientist who's been at this for 25 years, and it's his, his specialty. And he said those changes don't really happen. And the other thing, um, sorry to cut you off, Mark. No, go right ahead. No, you you mentioned before the part about where they said, oh, his brain is going to be changed for two years. Well, even if you'd believe that brain change stuff, Nora Volkoff's studies that that are the sort of landmark thing with meth, they showed that after 14 months abstinent, people's meth addicts' brain was looked, you know, just totally normal. So if you do buy that line of reason, it's it's far short of two years. 
right. based right. on the evidence that is out there. Um, but I'm sorry. So what were you, uh, yeah. So you're saying the dad is reading all the nonsense about math, right? right? He's seeing breaking bad and whatever else mm -hmm. we're seeing this, we're seeing the meth mouth pictures, right? right? And you right. do get into panic as a parent and you, and everybody has said you can't quit without treatment. So it, it, it just ramps everything up. And to me, that's, you know, I, I, I don't think people are going to take this away from the movie, but to me, it's a it's a nightmare about treatment, and it is what I described in my TEDx talk about how you get into this system and you get sort of brainwashed into yeah. playing this whole addict role, and that is really a terrifying nightmare of 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 a movie to play out. Uh, yeah, you know, but they don't present it from that angle. They present it from, well, this kid is really addicted. Um, but but it inadvertently sort of shows that, like Michelle said, well, here we have a, he's on one three day binge, and next thing you know, he's in treatment. And next thing you know, all these things are happening. Next thing you know, he's overdosing. Well, the majority of people who start doing meth don't end up overdosing. Right. So. I mean, you know, and most of them aren't getting intervened on immediately. You know, if you're in your 20s or 30s and you start doing meth, you can keep that a little more quiet and avoid yeah. having people intervene on you, you know. But it's it's particular we, particularly with young people, we jump in and we assign this identity, say this is who you are, you need to exist in this system of care, and everything becomes a nightmare from there. It's, it's disturbing. And, and whether or not the movie was trying, they were trying to depict, and here's the irony, they were trying to depict treatment and the experience the family was having as at the end of victory for treatment. And the, the irony is we have no idea what would have happened with Nick if he never went. And... Most yeah. likely, most likely, based on the data, he would have gotten over the problem quicker, yep. with less fanfare, and with less disturbance to the family. It's all of the of the fear mongering, and the addict identity that's placed into the person that's the issue. But they're depicting it like he needed more treatment. He needed more treatment. But you can't get around the idea that he kept getting worse. Yeah, with so, every treatment stay. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a direct correlation. So you have, so, so if we had a, a treatment for cancer where every single time you went to the hospital and had the treatment, you got more cancer, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't, yeah. ha we wouldn't hail it as the gold standard of what you need to do for that cancer. I mean, it's nuts. But because it's a metaphorical disease, because it's got all these gaps in the whole theory, because people aren't asking the real questions of why isn't my son moving on, right? That yeah. they, they just assume this is the path. And especially, it was wonderful. The father had some good common sense when she said, if relapse is part of recovery, he said, that's like, what did he say? He about, said, that's like saying crashing is part of pilot training. It was, That is so <laughs> good. It was perfect. It was, it was you know. But yet, but yet, he learns to accept that his son is going to relapse, and so did Nick. Um, so I, all yeah, of that was this just... This movie depicts what it's like 
for a family member, a smart man. I mean, clearly Nick's father is a smart man. He does his homework. And in what we saw was somebody getting indoctrinated into the treatment model and asking some good questions but we actually got to see the brainwashing yeah it's it's un, it was such a great movie if you're on our side and you understand the facts you know but literally yeah. every 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 5 minutes there was a myth being presented as fact and this father and son going down that rabbit hole and it was it was hard for me. Disturbing. Yeah, it was disturbing. because I, I'm a product of that. I was a product of, yeah, of that yeah. indoctrination. We all were. Yeah, and it almost so, killed me. So the other part that was interesting, you brought up the the one meeting where the woman says it's 20 to 80% success rate. Yep. And then he's meeting with someone else later who tells him, no, that's where'd you hear that number? It's more like in the single digits. Yes, that's right. right. And, um, and that guy is presented as far more authoritative and which is interesting because then we have more treatment after that point and Nick eventually gets well. And so then if, if it is in the single digits, if it's, if it's 5%, right? So was he the one in 20 that it worked for or did it have nothing to do with the treatment at all? And obviously our position it has, is that the success has nothing to do with the treatment. No, people, but, people but, get over it in spite of the treatment. Yeah. But do viewers of the movie mm. understand that? Of course you know not. what I mean? Right, of course not. And that's what's, that's what's so painful for me is it just kept the narrative running because the, the idea nobody goes into the movie thinking treatment doesn't work right you're going yeah. into the movie to see how did this kid recover yeah and he recovers in spite of all the nonsense that he's been dragged through and and it's interesting because all through the movie there are little spices of truth and mm-hmm. it's always nick and the father in the most hysterical of scenes where the truth comes out when he's like it's not a fucking disease. It's not like cancer. And then what does the sponsor say? That's your disease talking. Yeah. I mean, think about how bizarre of an answer that is. That's your disease talking. That what you have two people in your inside your mind. He was actually telling Nick that he's insane, right? I mean, if you take it for what he's saying, you're saying that you have you're schizophrenic now. Um, now he's not saying that explicitly, but you get the point. I mean, it's yeah. nuts what they're saying. So, so, but throughout it, Nick is saying, I can stop if I want to. This isn't a disease. Um, I like to get high. He says that at least five times throughout. Mm -hmm. Um, But when pressured, immediately when he says that, they start screaming at him. Because that's what parents do, because they're scared. I get it. But, but if everybody just calmed down and, and really got down to brass tacks, uh, without the judgment of being an addict, if it wasn't framed that way, they probably could have had a conversation and it would have turned out totally different. Totally different. And that's what we do at the Freedom Model is we don't grill somebody. We accept them for who they are and we just ask the, the right questions and give them the facts. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about um, causation, you know, yes. and 
there's a lot of experiments on people that show we will find some kind of causation in any story that we hear. There, there were studies, some uh, famous studies where they made an animation of a little ball in a triangle moving around on a screen, like randomly, and they showed it to people, and they said, "Well, the triangle is trying to hurt the ball," you know. And so, what they you know, what that kind of stuff is showing is we're always like. We're we're always drawing some kind of causation out of everything. And so what is sad to me is, as I was already saying, is that even though there's facts throughout this movie that show that his problems got worse once he went to treatment and the other guy says, hey, the treatment's only the success is only in single digits, this, that and the other thing, even though all of that is there, we lock on to the onto the events and say, well, each of these events caused the next. So when he's sober here at the end, well, it must have been that last little stint in treatment or call to his sponsor or whatever it is. We put together this causation that that caused the next thing. But when you do slow down, if you, if you know, this is what I want to, I guess the commentary I'm trying to make for people who watch the movie, like slow down and look at the bigger picture. Things really got worse when he got in there. They were all over the map. And and there's nothing here that really indicates that treatment made these people's journey any better. That's exactly right. Look at the actual events that occurred. If you get rid of the narrative, eliminate the narrative that treatment works because we know it doesn't from the numbers. Now, you, the, the listener may not know that, but there's there's so much research that shows this. Um, yeah, I want to. You know, you you mentioned something about addictions, people's addictions becoming longer. Um, in one of the in one of the the big data sets I have on heroin and opioid addiction, um, they compared you know people who didn't get treatment to those who did and. The ones who didn't get treatment actually had a slightly couple points higher success rate. And, but there was one thing that came up in it that was really, this was in the NISARC data, it was really crazy. And that was that the length of the most recent episode of heroin use was something like 68 months for people who had had treatment. And it was like 24 for people who hadn't. And so it was was really, to me, clear as day evidence that once you put people into that system, um, it warps things. It really does. Yeah. Um, You you can't teach people that they're sick when in reality they're not sick. And and, And have them believe that sickness and not have it affect them in a negative way. I mean... Uh, you know, these myths that we've been teaching people for 70 years, is it happenstance that we have more treatment, we spend $36 billion a year on treatment, and the problem hasn't gone away? It hasn't even been reduced. It's remained stable, you know, for, for that time. It has had no effect whatsoever on yeah. the people that are getting high and drunk. It's All it does is prolong the problem. Um, now, so we, we talked about, um, what the father goes through, right? The father's going through a lot of pain, yeah. and that's a big part of what this movie is about. Now, 
throughout the movie, Michelle, we see his memories and he's trying to figure out, you know, what did he do wrong, right? right. There's this sense of right. something must have gone wrong in Nick's life. What do you think about that? Well, that, that's what I, I honed in on that right away, right at the beginning of the movie, that this father is convinced that something he did has led to his son struggling. And, and I think there was, there was one particular scene where his son is um, maybe 10 years old and he's putting him on a plane to go see his mother. And, or maybe he's not even that old, maybe he's like seven or eight. Putting him on a plane by himself and you can see that the agony of having to put his son on the plane and his son is terrified. And in the father's mind, he's thinking, oh, you know, he's, he's linking all of these things because of the whole idea that, that childhood trauma. Oh, and by the way, flying by yourself as a child should not be a traumatic experience. Yeah. It isn't traumatic for most children. Um, but, but he, you know, in his mind, because of everything he's reading online, I'm sure he's thinking, I've done this to my son. I've created this. And I think a lot of parents lock into that and think this has got to be my fault. But what parents need to know if they're watching this movie is, you know, when your kid is getting high, he's not remembering, you put me on a plane when I was seven years old, and that's why I'm getting high right now. He's thinking, geez, I think I'd really like to be high. It'd feel really good. <laughs> yeah, you know. that's what you just said is more important than anything because we can, you can look back and find traumatic experiences Absolutely. if you want to blame them, you know? Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's funny because my daughter taught me something really valuable. It wasn't that long ago. And we went through a rough period, me and her, and I don't know, when she was younger. And I said, you know, we were just talking about that. And she goes, Dad, I don't even care about any of that. <laughs> Literally, Dad. I don't even, like, it doesn't matter. I said, it really doesn't. You know, those were some tough times. And uh, she said, no, it's just, she goes, I know you love me with all your heart. And it really, you know, it's not a big deal. And, and I thought about that, and I thought about all the stuff that I grew up with, you know, and you get over it unless you're taught that you can't. Yes, and unless then, you're taught it's a trauma, and, and it causes all these other problems. Yeah, I mean, I mean what, what part, what year of your life have you not had some traumatic event? Some, right. Or some yeah. stressful event. challenges. Or, yeah, or some depressing event or depressing time. You know? yeah. So these are all human things that when connected to substance use are, 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 are a real trap because you can't get rid of stress, trauma, depression, anxiety out of the human condition. It's an impossibility. It is a part. It is an inherent part of being a human being. So if you say in a treatment center as a professional, well, my God, you know, if you have trauma, you will be triggered to use. If you have stress or anxiety, sometimes if you have too good a life, you'll you'll be yeah, too excited. Yeah, get too happy. Yeah, I can't get too yeah. happy. You know, you'll get manic, and then that'll trigger you to use. Those learned connections are what my forte is in, in the freedom model. It's, it's the thing that bothers me the most because that's the stuff. I did grow up hard. I did not have it easy. And it was constantly thrown in my face that that's why I was such a screw up. Um, and yeah, our parents got, my parents got divorced. Mark's parents got divorced. Your parents are still together, right, Steve? I mean, yeah, they are. And you were, and yep. you were the worst one out of all of us, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that's the thing. And we, when we were watching the movie, you know, more than 50% of marriages end in divorce. So does that mean that 50%, if it's an inherent connection in a drinking culture, and every at least 50% of the population should be drinking it should heavily. Be heavily, should be totally addicted and, and totally treatment. out of control. Yeah. yeah. And that that sounds that sounds a little silly, <laughs> right? Yes, of course. When you when you do say it this way, but when you're looking for explanations, it doesn't sound silly. Is the problem, and um, that's why I'm glad we do these podcasts so we can give people another perspective. <laughs> that right that that there's a lot of divorces that happen. There's a lot of childhood abuse that happens, and like you said, there's people that don't have. You know, I do meet people that are puzzled that say, Definitely I'm good. trying to figure out what happened to me. Right. You know, because my yeah. life was good. My life was very good. I have no complaints. Why am I drinking right now? Yeah. Because right now you think you need alcohol to be happy. That's yeah. why it really is that simple. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, for today, but there is so much more to this movie, and I, I really, I think we're gonna have to go back to it. I think so. Um, I think we want to go back to it from from the dad's point of view, uh, more so, and and talk really about uh, the, the the problems that treatment creates for families and how it, it really does drive a wedge between families. It tears them apart, um, you know, with their labels and, and the problems there, and 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 also. You know, there's the part, the recovery part for Nick, um, the, you know, the relationship he builds with his sponsor and. Um, yeah, and I want to get into that. I, there's a lot AA more thing, stuff yeah. that we need to get into, but um, <laughs> it's it's been just over 30 minutes and we're told that that's what we should do. <laughs> so, um, so I want to thank everybody for listening. Definitely tune in next time and, and we will talk more about Beautiful Boy. Thank you so much. All right, take care, listeners. Bye. For listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by the Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, the Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, you can check out SoberForever.net. Once again, that's SoberForever.net.